I was looking at the calendar earlier today and I realized it was November the 24th when I was with you last. Who would have thought at that time that between then and now so much would have changed? So I'm going to be here with you virtually but with just as much joy in my heart as I came the last time. And I'm really looking forward to sharing some of these messages with you over the next three Sundays that I'm with you. Now, I don't know how many of you recycle, but I recycle regularly and faithfully. I make sure that the right material goes into the right kind of bin and get it out on the right days. But you know, I wasn't always like that. There was a period of time when I didn't recycle at all. And then there was a time when I believed in recycling. I understood the concept but I still didn't do it. Behavior only changed when something I believed to be true became a value because of certain convictions that began to deepen inside of me. Convictions about leaving a legacy of a better world for my children and grandchildren. Convictions about the ecological dimensions of being a follower of Jesus. Now, you might say, well, that's very interesting, Sundar, but what does that have to do with a message series on prayer that you're going to be talking to us about? Simply this, in prayer as in recycling, as in every area of life, even things that we believe in and which are true, only translate into sustained action when belief becomes value based on strong convictions. When belief becomes value based on strong convictions. I don't know where you are at your own spiritual journey, but I suspect you're probably as varied as a number of people that are listening to this. So here's a statistical sampling of a couple of surveys that was done in North America and in the UK. That'll probably give you a little bit of a picture of where you are as a group. The first thing I discovered was that most people pray. It seems to be a deeply ingrained impulse. 84% of people in a North American survey claim they prayed in the past week. 64% pray more than once a day. What really surprised me was that unanswered prayer doesn't seem to be much of a deterrent at all. 85% insisted they could accept God's failure to grant their prayers. 82% don't turn away from God even when their prayers go unanswered. Only 13% declared that they have lost faith because their prayers went unanswered. Now surprising as that is, this surprised me even more. Skeptical agnostics, that's basically one step away from atheists, also pray. Henry was a 64-year-old in the UK. He said he prays every night, kneeling by his bed. He starts by silently reciting the Lord's Prayer and then asks for his loved ones to be kept safe and well. Sometimes he says, I include other specific groups or suffering groups. Asked if he believed in God, he said, I don't know, but I would describe myself at the skeptical end of agnosticism I certainly wouldn't classify myself as religious. Now, if this is such a deeply ingrained impulse, and people who don't even know whether someone is listening are praying, you might say, well, then why do we need a series on prayer? Because when it comes to the issue of satisfaction, the survey showed something very interesting. Only 20% of North Americans 45 or older who are somewhat religious cite prayer as their most satisfying spiritual and religious experience. Henry, our friend in the UK, says, I worry about it quite a lot. Is it some kind of insurance policy? Is it superstition? Or is it part of something more real? Now, part of the reason for this dissatisfaction I discovered is that most people pray on the run. Here's what the UK survey showed. One half of the adults say they're increasingly likely to call on God when engaged in activities such as cooking or exercising. They combine prayer 
with daily activities. One in five pray while doing their household chores or cooking. 15% pray while traveling and 12% pray during exercise or other leisure pursuits. Now, now you might say, well, okay, maybe the survey results wouldn't apply to us. We are committed Christ followers. We are evangelicals. Well, you know what the survey showed about them? 60% of evangelicals said they prayed on the move while walking or using transport. Nearly two-thirds, 63% admitted to being easily distracted when spending time with God. And then, of course, there's a familiar culprit that I can probably call the bottom line. Although 87% agreed amongst the evangelicals that every Christian needs to spend time alone with God on a daily basis, and that without, their, without that their faith will suffer, 42% said they find it difficult to find time on a regular, disciplined basis to pray. And you know what? That's interestingly true even in the COVID days. So here's how I can summarize the situation. It doesn't matter whether you're skeptical agnostics to religious evangelicals. There seems to be an innate urge to pray, sustained by some sort of belief. But because it is so far from being a cherished value, it is not a priority that gets the attention it needs and so remains deeply unsatisfying. That's why a series on prayer is timely and necessary. And I want to unpack for you several convictions that have gradually become deepened in my life over the years and now the decades, that continually change belief in prayer into a value that affects my behavior. Here are the convictions we're going to be looking at. Prayer will become a value when we realize that life is war, that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, that the eternal God is Lord of time, and that God speaks to us in his word inviting us into a life-giving conversation that transforms us. Now, because I only have three uh, Sundays with you, I'm going to be unpacking the first three, but I will provide you a, a link to a sermon on the fourth message so you can take a look at that as well. Now, interestingly, each of these convictions will address one major obstacle to satisfying and meaningful prayer. The conviction that life will war will counter this peacetime mentality that keeps us living a privatized and unengaged life. The conviction that apart from Jesus we can do nothing deals with the delusion of self-sufficiency. The conviction that Jesus is Lord of time counters busyness, delivers us from the tyranny of the urgent. And the conviction that God speaks and we can dialogue with him counters boredom that comes from jargon and meaningless repetition. And for those of you who are not Christ followers, the Henrys in our midst, well, thank you so much for coming. We trust that you will keep on coming and keep on listening because wherever you may be in your prayer life, we, we hope that these messages will help you take that to the next level of satisfaction and maybe begin to result in some tangible life transformation as well. Today, we want to look at that first conviction that changes belief into a value, and that is that life is war. Now, the very first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, describe the beautiful, magnificent work of creation. And the apex of that whole creation is called Adam and Eve, the first human beings. Immediately after that, and, and God creates them in his image and gives them a mission to use their faculties that they have by virtue of being made in the image of God to study creation and to use that knowledge to harness creation for the benefit of humanity, for the glory of God, and all by depending upon God for the wisdom that is needed for this. 
Immediately after that, the Bible introduces us to the devil. The warfare begins. He mounts a subtle attack on the trustworthiness of God and the goodness of God and the truthfulness of God's word and persuades Adam and Eve to reach instead to accomplish that mission but by sustaining it by their own wisdom independently of God. And the rest of that story is, a, is an outworking of, that, the, of the result of that rebellious independence from God. So the battle was joined at the very beginning. From the very beginning, we were in spiritual warfare. Fast forward millennia to the time when Jesus came into this world. And he came. He came in order to do what the first Adam was supposed to do. He came as the beginning of a whole new stream of humanity. He did what Adam was supposed to do. He lived his life in total dependence upon God and total loyalty to God and demonstrated the kind of life that all human beings were capable of living and made to live. And yet the biographers of Jesus, three of the four of them, record that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, to accomplish this mission of redeeming God's original purposes for humanity, he was tempted by the devil, who uh, attempted to tempt him in exactly the same way that he did with Adam. That's why Jesus is called in the Bible the second Adam or the last Adam. And in fact, his disciple Judas, who betrayed him, and many of you know that story, the scriptures tell us, the biographies of Jesus record for us, that it was the devil himself who inspired him. So there again, in the work of Jesus to redeem humanity and to restore God's original purposes for them, it was a battle with the forces of darkness. Now, of course, the gospel stories end with the, the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church is born, God's new humanity begins to get formed, and one of the greatest leaders of that early church, a man named Paul, whom many people know as St. Paul or the Apostle Paul, writes to ordinary Christians like you and me about this warfare. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, it's interesting. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The early church then, the church throughout its history, and the church today globally, faced constant human opposition, ranging all the way from devastating martyrdom and persecution, even today, all the way through to subtle ridicule and marginalization and everything in between. There has been, and as always will be, human opposition to following Jesus in this world and living like he did. But Paul, writing to them, doesn't say they are our opponents, they are our enemies. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against a hierarchy of spiritual forces of darkness arrayed against the enemy. They, these invisible realities, are our real opposition. And so for that, God has provided armor for us. And so he goes on to write, he said, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened with the belt of truth. And these are the weapons. The belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, as shoes for your feet, the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then he says this, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Yes, we have weapons. We have truth. We have righteousness. We have shoes. We have the shield of faith. But then Paul changes the verb to a participle, praying. And if you're an English grammar student, you know that a participle actually governs and qualifies the verbs. In other words, all of these weapons are to be put on and deployed through prayer. Prayer is not one optional weapon out of a list of six or seven. It is the means by which the weapons are deployed. This is Paul's exhortation to us. Our fundamental strategy in fighting the spiritual battle is through this activity called prayer, with all kinds of prayers. That's why I said the more aware we become of the reality of spiritual warfare and the scripture's foundational strategy for it, that belief in prayer will increasingly become a conviction that will then actually get us praying. Now, Paul did say praying on all occasions with all prayer, all kinds of prayer. So what is to be the content of our praying? There's all kinds of prayer, but there's a beginning point that might surprise us. Because Jesus, after his resurrection and before his ascension, he says these words. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm always with you to the end of the ages, as promised. Now, it's interesting. If Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, says, I have authority, and I've given that authority to you, and there is spiritual warfare, you and I would expect that the first thing he would say is, use this authority to smash the forces of darkness. That's not what he says. <laughs> Instead, he says, I've given you authority to make disciples of people. Go tell other people what I've come to do. And you teach them what I have taught you to do. Isn't that interesting? The starting point, he says, is to become certain kinds of people and invite other people to become that kind of people. Like himself. Now, how did Jesus behave towards the, his human opposition? It's interesting that one of the biographers, Luke, he puts the beginning message of Jesus as starting with these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news. And then he says he proclaimed, proclaimed the year of the favor of God. He's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah, one of Israel's greatest prophets. And in that text, it goes on to say the year of the Lord's favor and the year of vengeance upon his enemies. Jesus leaves that out. So what was he like towards his enemies? He came to bless them with his favor. He came to offer them forgiveness. He died on the cross for their sins. He secured that forgiveness. And then he gave the authority to his disciples to go and proclaim this news so that they could become like him and then invite other people to become part of that community. That was the starting point, he says. And that needs to be the starting point of our prayers. In the all kinds of prayers we are to pray in the reality of the spiritual warfare, this is the starting point. 
to become a radically new kind of people, inviting other people into that. This will take nothing less than a radical change of heart. That's why Jesus, before, after giving the commission to go into all the world and proclaim this gospel, to teach people, to make them make disciples of them, he said, but don't go. Don't go. Go, but don't go until, until you have received power from on high and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It is only the coming of the Holy Spirit into their lives that will bring about this radical change in their lives that will make them into this new attractive community that will draw other people to itself. It is this work of the Holy Spirit that is often called revival. And therefore, in the all kinds of prayer that we are to pray, the first and foundational thing, there's more to pray about after that, but the first and foundational thing is to pray for this kind of revival to happen within us in the light of the fact that we have a 24-7 enemy arrayed in systematic order and a hierarchy of powerful spiritual forces. Now, what does that look like? What happened when they waited and the Holy Spirit came upon them? Look what happened to them. He says, 3,000 people responded to the gospel. And then it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, what is the apostles' teaching? This has to do with systematically understanding. Jesus didn't appear in a vacuum. The story of his coming into this world, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and the commission that he gave to the disciples wasn't something that happened in a historical vacuum, but it was the fulfillment of everything their own scriptures had taught them, and this is what it had been leading up to. Basically, they were beginning to grasp the grand narrative of their own scriptures and how it came to a critical fulfillment in Jesus. They were becoming doctrinally mature people. Secondly, he said, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayers. They, this has to do with their corporate worship. Corporate worshiping community was the second thing that characterized them. And then thirdly, it says, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, what is fellowship? It goes so far beyond coffee, tea, and bagels in the fellowship hall after Sermon Sunday, or maybe better still, a potluck and casseroles. It goes way beyond that. It's a translation of a Greek word, koinonia, which means a common sharing. So we go on to read this. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this common sharing found its most concrete expression in the way they handled their material possessions, liquidating them as and when they were needed to demonstrate radical generosity in caring for one another. So we go on to read, for example, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You see, this is probably how they began to find out even some of the deeper needs that they could meet. They didn't just gather together in the larger groups in the temple, which they did, but also met together in these smaller groups. There was another dimension of their fellowship because this allowed them to connect at a heart-to-heart -heart level, face-to-face -face relationships, where they could understand what was going on in the person, whether their needs were physical needs, spiritual needs, financial needs, emotional needs. They were then able to build into them. This was the common treasure and the common fellowship there. And they held it loosely. It was available to be given away. That was their devotion to fellowship. Now, this is what the community looked like. 
This is why Jesus said, don't go until the Holy Spirit comes, until you become these kind of people. Now, notice one more thing. He says, they devoted themselves. <laughs> they didn't dabble in these things. They didn't dabble in fellowship and apostles' doctrine and worship as if they were picking and choosing from a religious smorgasbord. They devoted themselves to it. And, and if, if anyone even doubts the necessity of revival in our lives to begin, to be soldiers in this sense of the word, we only have to compare and contrast the typical North American church with this kind of a church. For example, let's take the issue of just attendance. I mean, nowadays I know you're attending from the sofas in your living rooms. But when things were in the pre-COVID days and hopefully when we start getting back together again, have we even settled the issue of whether we're going to be in church on Sundays, gathering together with God's people, or does it depend on what else comes up that particular day? Are we being devoted to corporate worship, or are we dabbling in it? And how about when we do come? Do we come on time? Or do we come 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes late? Something we wouldn't dream of doing in our workplaces. Do we want to press in and avail of everything that the worship leaders and the pastors have put together to allow us to engage with God in a meaningful way? Or do we just pick and choose from the preliminaries to the real meat? Are we dabbling in worship or are we devoted to worship? And how about when the preaching starts? Do we engage with it fully, doing our best to understand what is being taught to us? Or is the ever-present smartphone right next to us, though it's hopefully on silent mode? Are we devoted to the apostles' teaching, or are we dabbling in the apostles' teaching? And how about devotion to prayer versus dabbling in it? I remember speaking in a country that shall remain unnamed, and the wife of the denominational leader at a prayer meeting that we were at before the service started was not only checking the, her phone, but was responding to texts at that time. And I happened to know from conversations before the meeting that there wasn't any particular emergency that they were waiting for updates on at all. Is that devotion to prayer or is it dabbling in prayer? And how about fellowship? Is there a true heart-to-heart -heart connection? Or is there a quick five-minute, ten-minute connection in the lobby with your favorite friends and then off you go? Dabbling in fellowship or devoted? Now, please don't get me wrong. In walking you through this contrast between our dabbling and the devoted nature of the first church, the, the point isn't to scold us or to rebuke us. You got to remember that this church didn't happen to become like this because Peter rebuked them and scolded them and told them this is what you should do. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit came upon them and made them into this kind of a community. So it will be with you and me. My whole point in walking us through this contrast was to just create a conviction within us that we need this. This is the starting point. It is the work of the Spirit given in response to prayer in the light of the promise of Jesus that he came to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Can I say that? This kind of transformation from a dabbling to a devoted community that will be irresistibly attractive to the people around us. It is the work of the Spirit given in response to prayer in the light of the promise of Jesus that he came to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. So from the all kinds of prayer that Paul says is foundational to our battle strategy, this is the first kind of praying that needs to happen. So let's just step back and walk through a few moments. What have we learned today? 
We've learned that prayer will only move from being a belief to a value when we become convinced of four critical realities. Number one, we're in a spiritual battle against a determined, powerful enemy who never lets up 24-7. Secondly, we need spiritual armor for the battle, which we have been provided with, but we deploy them first and foremost through prayer. We've learned that the first agenda in this all kind of praying is for the spirit to revive the church so we become this attractional community. And then, of course, we looked at Acts chapter 2 to give some idea of the difference between a dabbling and a devoted church. One final element, and with that, we're finished. Church history, from the time when the Holy Spirit first came, which we call the day of Pentecost, which we'll be celebrating in two or three weeks, throughout the history of the church, the Spirit has come in response to people gathering together to pray in this way. But there's, while the expressions of this have been as varied as the accounts and the geography and the timing, one or two elements have remained constant. And that is the prayer of repentance. In this all kind of praying that Paul says we need to do, not only is this prayer for revival, but we are preceded by a prayer for repentance. And the word repentance doesn't necessarily involve breast beating or tearing yourself up or wailing on the ground, although that may well happen. And it has been known to happen sometimes when the Spirit comes. It's a change of mind. It's acknowledged that this is the way I was thinking, this is the way I need to think in the light of God's word. So, for example... We need to repent of the peacetime mentality. This peacetime mentality is made possible by the ignorance of the reality of spiritual warfare. Many of us are not even aware, at least not aware on a constant basis of the reality of this spiritual warfare. We need to repent of apathy because life is good to us. Even in these COVID days, my brothers and sisters, here in North America, life is incredibly good compared to how most of the world is. So we need to repent of that kind of apathy. We need to repent of the satisfaction of dabbling rather than being devoted to the apostles' doctrine, to worship and prayer, and to fellowship. And we need to be, we need to repent of things within us that might limit the work of the Spirit. And if you happen to be here five months ago, we devote a whole sermon to this. Let me just remind you by way of, uh, by just by a quick way of reminder, and for a fresh awareness for people who are not here, here are some of the things that the Bible tells us, the scripture tells us, prevent the work of the Holy Spirit. So in addition to that peacetime mentality and, and, and the apathy and the dabbling, we need to lament of these things, grieving, grieving through the spirit of disunity, uh, malice, anger, hatred, the relational sins. They quench the spirit, they get in the way of the spirit. Then lying to the Spirit through rationalization. In that same early church that we talked about, in this radical generosity, there was one couple that decided to sell what they were going to, uh, what they owned, some of it, to give it away to somebody else, but they didn't give all of it away. They kept some of it back for themselves while appearing to give away everything. Now, we don't know why they did this. The Scripture story doesn't tell us that. But there's probably some kind of rationalization. And... Lying, and, he call, and the scriptures call it lying to the spirit. And then quenching the spirit through rigidity and fear. You know, we don't want revival. Some of us may say, well, look, I like church the way it is. One song in the beginning, we are welcomed. And then two more songs or three more songs, 
And then there's a pastoral prayer. There are a few announcements. The pastor comes and speaks a message. And then there's a closing song. And then there's a blessing and maybe a few more announcements. I like it that way. I don't want to lose control. Fear and rigidity. And then maybe discounting the spirit through unbelief. Come on, Sundar, really? Really 24-7 warfare? I don't think so. I'm finding it hard to believe that. And really, aren't you making too much of this business of dabbling versus devoted? Isn't it, isn't it enough that I come up and participate, have a few of these elements in my life? And repentance. Should I really be thinking about these things deeply, examining my own heart? That doesn't seem like a very pleasant thing to do. That in itself is something we need to repent of. Because if there's an enemy 24-7, if prayer is the foundational strategy, and all kinds of praying are, and the starting point is revolution in our own lives through the Spirit, and there are some things that stop the work of the Spirit, we need to start there. The, the logic is irrefutable in the Scriptures. It is this kind of conviction that big will change prayer from being into a belief to a value. So quickly, can I suggest three things? First of all, review. Just review this message at least once this week because we've covered a lot of ground. And it might be a good idea. Remember, you don't want to dabble. You want to be devoted to the apostles' doctrine. You want to be devoted to the scriptures that we walked you through today. So at least once, spend 30 minutes to review this. Maybe more if you need to. Let the conviction grow within you that life is war. Secondly, repent. I've suggested a few things. Not all of them are applicable to all of this, but some of them probably are. And even as you're listening to the message and reviewing it, you may want to stop and confess that. Change your mind about it. That's what repentance is. And then thirdly, reflect. Reflect on what Bayview Glen Church will look like if it became an Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47 church. What happens if Bayview Glen Church becomes devoted rather than dabbling in doctrine? Devoted to fellowship rather than dabbling in fellowship? Devoted to worship in prayer rather than dabbling in prayer? Imagine and ask God to do exactly that. Wouldn't that be amazing if those are prayers that he answers for you today?